Okay. Recording started. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2011. Our special guest tonight or today is Frederick Hess on his book, The Same Thing. Uh, the book's called The Same Thing Over and Over How School Reformers Get Stuck in Yesterday's Ideas. I've been calling you Rick because I think that was in your emails. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. Thanks so much for being here. We, he is on the telephone bridge, so we have a slight lag, so we'll apologize in advance if I speak over him. Coming up on the Future of Education, we have a short break. We resume on April 7th with Bernadine Porter to talk about uh, local education engagement, engaging local communities and building education cultures. Carl Speak is part of our um, student and teacher reputation piece. We'll be doing uh, an interview on his book, Be Your Own Brand. Jerry Mintz talks about the education revolution. David Shank on his book, The Genius in All of Us. Barry Schwartz on the paradox of choice. And lots more you can see there. Newly added in the last few days, a Denise Pope from Stanford on her book, Doing School. Uh, Sandy Hirsch from San Jose State University's uh, library program on libraries and digital literacy. Uh, and Doug Rushkoff on program or be programmed. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded. Yesterday's interview with Bill Mathis on school reform, a really nice um, match to this interview today, is up at futureofeducation.com, the full Illuminate recording and the MP3. Mitch Resnick from MIT Media Lab, Don Smith-Meyer from Sophia.org, Kevin Kelly on his book, What Technology Wants, John Seeley Brown, lots of great interviews, all recorded and available both in MP3 format and the Illuminate full recordings. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we sure are glad that you're here. You can use the emoticons at the bottom of the participant window to indicate your feelings. Smiley face, clapping, confused look or thumbs down. That icon with the hand and the green up arrow, the larger icon, is how you would raise your hand when we go to Q&A. And you can take the microphone if you think you're going to do that. Go ahead and go up to Tools, Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. I also recommend that everybody go up to View Layouts and switch yourself to the Wide Layout. It makes it much easier to see the chat. I've now given you permissions to modify the whiteboard. Look to the left of the map for a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. Let's just know where you're listening in from. You're also welcome to shout out in the chat, maybe the time, temperature, fair amount of stormy weather around. I know in California here we're preparing for another big set of storms. That looks like Hawaii. Is that somebody actually from Russia? Lots in North America. Thanks, Peggy. I thought that interview yesterday was quite interesting as well. Salt Lake City. Somebody's getting ready for lots of snow. Connecticut. New Zealand. Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. So Rick, I don't think I've read a book recently that killed so many sacred cows all in one sitting. <laughs> How's the response? Well, uh, 
Uh, I'll take that as a good thing. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to explore. Um, there's a quote on the back jacket of the book from Deborah Myers. She says, half the time I'm agreeing with every word Rick Hess says and wishing I had said it myself. The other half the time I'm provoked, stimulated, and arguing with him. He's got it both all right and all wrong. Read him, argue with him, take him very seriously. How has the response to the book been? Um, it's been good. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, especially after uh, my friend Diane Ravitch's book last year, uh, that the bar for uh, what, what one might hope for the reception to an education book has been raised. Uh, and it certainly hasn't been quite the uh, firestorm that Diane ignited. Uh, but there's been a lot of interest, have gotten uh, fantastic feedback, um, have had you know terrific conversations with uh, folks who are in a position to do something about these issues. Uh, so I feel uh, you know I, I just feel pretty darn good about uh, where we're at. So at one and the same time, it feels as though the education discussion is getting both deeper and shallower. Can you describe? Describe kind of why that you think that might be happening. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think one of the one of the things that I that it most heartens me, uh, even though it seems to have uh, <laughs> um, uh, depressed so many others, uh, has been the debate about Wisconsin. Um, I think one of the frustrating things for me of the past decade was that the Bush administration uh, made a kind of intellectually incoherent conservative reform uh, the, 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 the conservative answer uh, to the ideas that were being championed by progressive reformers and the Democrats for education reform. Uh, which meant, to my mind, we weren't talking seriously about institutions, um, about incentives. Uh, instead, we had this kind of uh, casual, um, often reflexive bipartisanship around a, a, a number of pat answers like merit pay and charter schools uh, that were too often a divorce from any serious um, debate about how do you organize institutions and politics to permit uh, school improvement. So while many people have bemoaned, you know, the, the, the nastiness and the vitriol uh, of the debates about Wisconsin's push on collective bargaining, um, I've been heartened that it feels to me like we're finally talking uh, honestly about what do we understand to be the barriers embedded in statute, uh, in contracts, in the way the states go about the business of schooling. So I think in that sense, um, we, we've started to uh, get to a much more visceral, much more serious place. Uh, at the same time, I think what we're uncomfortable for whatever reason uh, with those kinds of debates, and we tend to turn them into name calling. Uh, we tend to start getting ad hominem. Uh, instead of granting that we can have serious disagreements about important questions, uh, there's a rush to question one another's motives. Um, and so I, I find myself both, uh, both heartened and disheartened often at the same time. So one of the benefits of history is the ability to see oftentimes that things aren't new. 
and I think that's one of the great strengths of the book is that you're kind of helping us to see that, that a lot of these conversations have taken place before. I also think that part of the, the purpose of the book or the message uh, as a reader that I got was sometimes things aren't the way they are for the reasons that we think they are. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's also the case that things that exist once made reasonable sense. Um, <laughs> that there was no conspiracy involved. When we look at teacher tenure or step and lane pay scales or school district configuration or school boards, um, our language can seem black and white. We can start talking about, you know, essentially about villains. And I think, you know, the nice thing about historic perspective is it, remind, it allows us to understand why something was done to think about whether it still makes sense and to understand how larger changes in the world might imply the value of changing the way we do schooling um, without any of this needing to imply that anybody is a villain or anybody is a superhero. Is there a degree to which the um the fact that the debate is happening at such a national federal level with such involvement of the federal government makes this any different? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it does uh, in two ways, one good and one bad. Um, I think in, the, 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 the good news is that it, it casts a national spotlight on these questions. Um, that generates attention, it generates, uh, it ramps up interest among uh, influential uh, advocates uh, and, and corporate and philanthropic leaders. Um, it offers opportunities uh, to surface ideas that otherwise don't get much attention. The downside is that it reinforces the, the notion that there is a solution, that there's a national solution to our educational challenges. Uh, and, I, and I worry that that leads us to start talking about what kinds of programs, what kinds of evaluation systems or, or pay systems uh, can we superimpose on 100,000 schools serving 52 million kids. Um, and I think there are sensible principles that apply across the board. Uh, and I think their value of uh, transparent information uh, exists and that there's a valuable uh, national role. Uh, but I think, these, I think the responses need to be sensible to the fact that children have enormously different needs, uh, that labor markets across the country look very different, uh, that school systems are dealing with uh, a variety of challenges, and I worry that the mindset that we're going to fix these things from Washington takes us away from heterodox solutions and drives us towards one-size-fits-all solutions. Well, uh, I want to give you a chance to kind of describe the way that you constructed the book. Um, and I think what is sort of an unabashed willingness at the beginning to 
kind of uh, give your sense of perspective of, of where you think they're going and this idea that there doesn't have to be just one solution. So would you talk a little bit about how you've um, organized the book to, to approach the topic? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, this book for me, I think, really sprouted from my frustration with the debates and, and the fact that I often, I often find myself um, wanting to agree with neither side <laughs> in so many of our big debates. For me, a great illustrative issue is uh, teacher pay. Um, that the reason that we have step and lane pay scales is because there were massive and intentional gender inequities a century ago um, that had been part and parcel of 19th century common schooling. Um, addressing those made good sense. Uh, it strikes me, though, that the notion that we want to pay all teachers equally uh, based primarily on seniority and, cor and course completion uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it seems intuitive to me that some teachers are better than others, that some are good at really important and valuable elements uh, of the job, and that we ought to design schools to take advantage of those skills, and we ought to compensate accordingly. So I grow enormously frustrated with my friends who suggest that paying teachers differently <laughs> is problematic. On the other hand, my friends who promote merit pay uh, seem wedded to this notion that we're going to prove somehow that merit pay works and that what it, what it means to work is that we're going to pay teachers based on movement and value-added test scores. And if they move those test scores enough, they're going to get bonuses. This, to me, has nothing to do with attracting new talent to the profession, with figuring out how to recognize uh, extraordinary uh, skills, or with rethinking how we arrange staffing and schooling to take advantage of the skills we have. Yet, what happens is these are the lines in the sand. You're for merit pay or you're against it. So the, the premise of the book is that actually, if you recognize that our existing kind of lockstep pay systems were a perfectly sensible response to inequities that existed a century ago, uh, and that they worked just fine through about the 1960s when we had a captive labor force of women college graduates who had few other viable alternatives, then you recognize that perhaps this is not a, a moral crusade issue, but hopefully a more pragmatic conversation about how do we start to rethink pay given that given the challenges of attracting and making the best possible use of terrific educators, and how do we attract those educators, and how do we re retain the most important ones. And that, to my mind, starts to offer us just a much more interesting and promising avenue for talking about real problem solving. So you look not only at the history of American education, but you, you put it within the context of a longer view about discussions of uh, teaching and learning. Um, and then you, you sort of come to this place of, you know, are we not capable of actually kind of rethinking based on what we really want? Um, 
and then my question for you is, so that rethinking of what we want, what level do you imagine that happening? Is um, What would be sort of the ideal way for this discussion and then changes to take place? So uh, this is a terrific issue. Yes, one, I think your point about me trying to put it in a longer time frame uh, it, it is worth noting because I think what that helps remind us is, is that we have spent lots of time and energy on debates um, that we have spent three millennia <laughs> having and that aren't likely to end anytime soon. Um, the debates about constructivist education uh, versus core knowledge. Uh, these are debates that would have been familiar to the Greeks. And what I take from this and from what I think is evidence that all of these models can be effective at times is that there is no one right answer here. And that in a nation as large and diverse and dynamic as the U.S., there's actually enormous value in cultivating a rich and heterogeneous uh, array of educational approaches. So one of the things I worry about is that we seem sometimes to figure out, imagine, we're supposed to figure out the best approach for all 52 million of our kids in every school and insist on that. And I think that's, I think that's a false god. Um, a second thing that looking back can remind us is that people are always nervous um, about changing the institutions to which they've become accustomed. Um, People uh, are nervous today about the use of online instruction and computer-assisted instruction. And they say, ah, it's not about technology, it's about teachers. But this is actually a familiar debate. A half a, half a millennia ago, five centuries ago, when the printing press was invented, uh, most educators were very nervous because they were worried that if you allowed students to have written material, which they read on their own, they would read it improperly. They would learn the wrong lessons. So educators today who can't imagine not giving students books five centuries ago were enormously concerned about giving students books. Um, so I think it, it, it reminds us that these, things, um, that these things change, that they evolve, and that a, a sense of perspective can help us uh, identify what, what do we value most and which of these debates are going to be, you know, endless or, or, or even ephemeral. So I'll come back to sort of my big question there, which is, and I think I'm using the right phrase from the book, with the emancipatory approach, when and where and how does that take place? You know, I felt uh, significantly enlightened by reading the book. How, now how do I impact the system and where? <laughs> um, so, so this is a terrific question. And, and partly, um, I, I think, so, so the big answer is I think this is something that we don't spend uh, very much time thinking about. <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about how do we impose new best practices or policies, um, but we don't spend much time thinking about how do we create room uh, to solve problems. So I think it operates at a couple levels. Um, the, 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 the guts of American education, uh, the, the action is really at the local level. Uh, school districts, at the end of the day, 
uh, are making decisions about spending dollars. Uh, they're raising uh, nationally typically 40 to 45 percent of school spending uh, on their own. Uh, they're employing the educators. They're making the decisions about models of delivery. Uh, so I think the place where you, you know, where you have the most leverage in starting to think differently about how do we use talent, about how do we start to incorporate technology smart, uh, and starting to think about uh, permitting different uh, school models and different instructional approaches to proliferate so long as they're reaching uh, common agreed upon ends as measured by presumably state metrics um, is really at the local level. But what that also points out uh, the, the importance of state metrics, the recognition that 40 or 45 percent of funding is state derived, um, is that these districts are constrained. Uh, they're constrained by contracts that have been written over decades, which have uh, locked into place a series of practices. Uh, they're constrained by state laws that have evolved over centuries. Uh, they're constrained by state funding formulas, which determine how dollars can be used. Uh, they're constrained by uh, state education agencies, and uh, including the folks who determine what's a permissible use of federal dollars when it comes to programs uh, impacted by maintenance of effort or supplement not supplant. Um, so districts ultimately, A, are restricted in a variety of ways, and B, often even if they're permitted to do something, have learned to be nervous, have learned to be timid, and are therefore less likely to take advantage of opportunities they have. So the response is really twofold. One, advocates who want to help create opportunities for educators to rethink the way that we go about uh, identifying the challenges and solving them uh, can really start at the district level uh, to surface ideas and opportunities and ways of thinking about how do we use tools and talent and technology. But second, there's a need um, both at the state level to push back and create room and create flexibility about how these elements are used, and also to educate and provide the kind of political and public cover so that educators who want to approach these questions differently um, have the wherewithal to do so. So in the book, you actually say, I think at one point, that part of your goal is just to encourage those who are seeking alternative trails. So we're seeing uh, TED, South by Southwest. Um, we're seeing a lot of venture capitalists sort of start to venture into education. And many who have been sort of enmeshed in long-term historical dialogue don't quite know how to react to these new waves of bright-eyed reformers, as you call them. What is an appropriate response to those who are bringing mm -hmm. energy in, who are bringing money in, but often don't see the full picture? Mm-hmm. Um, this is terrific. Um, <laughs> it's a terrific question. I think, unfortunately, um, we've often responded, or I think educators have often responded defensively. Uh, there's a sense that hey, we know what's going on here. These guys are outsiders. They're bringing their business jargon. Uh, they need to respect that we know what we're doing. I think that's a destructive mindset. Um, I think that sends the message to these folks uh, who are coming in. 
that they're really not welcome, and it suggests that they need to storm the barricades to have an impact. Um, and quite frankly, I think it's not a justified defensiveness uh, because public education, as we constantly remind ourselves, is a public enterprise. Uh, we're spending uh, tax dollars. Uh, educators, uh, you know, public educators work for state municipal government. Uh, they're serving the public students. So this notion that there's anything inappropriate or, or, or problematic about private citizens wading into a public education uh, is, I think, just is misguided. That said, I, I think so. I think the most productive way for educators uh, to, to respond to these folks. Um, is by welcoming them, um, but by welcoming them in a way which is hard-headed, which is neither defensive uh, nor accusatory, uh, but which says, hey, here's how we understand the challenges. Uh, here's what we hear you saying. Uh, let's sit down. Let's learn from each other. Let's argue about these things in good faith, and let's, let's not assume either that you're going to provide what we think we need um, but that we are going to find areas where we can agree and we're going to work together. Conversely, I think uh, it's important that those folks coming in from outside, the venture philanthropists, uh, corporate leaders, um, that they, that, that they um, earn their bones, uh, that they come in, that they spend time uh, getting a not just a high-level feel, not hearing a couple of exciting speeches, um, but talking to educators. Um, really sitting down and getting a granular sense of what are the obstacles, what are the frustrations that education leaders and educators deal with, what are the barriers, why do things look the way they do. And I think at that point, uh, these external change agents would find themselves um, in a position to wh where they would be, uh, where they would meet less resistance. Um, from folks in the system. We're, I wish you could see the chat because everything that we're talking about is producing large volume of chat. You know, Peggy makes the point that it's hard not to respond defensively sometimes when there's so much teacher bashing uh, and not feeling respected. Yeah, and you know, this is something where I think reasonable people disagree. Um, you know, I wrote something about this for the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, and got a lot of angry mail. Um, I actually don't think there's a lot of teacher bashing out there. Um, when you look, you know, I mean, it's important to remember that teaching, for, for, for mostly for the worse, uh, has never been a high prestige occupation in the U.S. Um, you know, normal schools were launched uh, just about two centuries ago because when we decided to uh, feminize a previously male teaching profession, uh, there was a notion that women didn't know how to interact with other people's children outside the home. Uh, hence the, the creation of the first normal schools uh, to teach women the norms of engaging with other people's children, uh, which of course are you know, the forebears of today's teacher colleges. Uh, what, what I see in today's debates, and yeah, again, well, you know, folks tuning in are free to disagree, but what I see is a lot of you know, pretty stark, honest criticism much of it for me, <laughs> of uh, how we currently pay teachers, of the benefit systems that are in place, of how tenure operates, um, of the results uh, that, that we are seeing from our schools. 
I honestly, I, I don't see this vilification of teachers that folks talk about. In fact, what I see is the syrupy um, kind of head bobbing where people are critical of these things but quickly go out of their way uh, to talk, then talk about how much they like and respect individual you know, teachers. Uh, much the same kind of criticism, I think, that you see of the American military post-Vietnam, where even those who are most critical of the Bush administration invading Iraq, say, uh, were always very careful to say, well, we think it's a horrible decision, but we support the troops. So, you know, and, and so if teachers feel they're being attacked, that's, you know, they feel that way, but that's not how it looks to me. And if teachers feel that an attack on existing pay scales or tenure policies or benefits um, is tantamount to an attack on teachers, then I just have to respectfully disagree. So it will be fun to go to the Q&A on this one, because I think there's some good nuanced conversation in the chat. Um, I, I wrote down a list of sort of core ideas from the book that really struck me, and we're not going to get to all of them. But one is that there's a definite theme through the book of seeing diversity as a great strength. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Sure. Um, you know, when we talk about international models uh, of education reform, if we think about Michael Barber's work or, you know, and his McKinsey analyses, uh, there's a tendency to suggest that the U.S. should become more like certain nations, Singapore, Finland, what have you. Uh, these tend to be relatively small, quite homogenous nations, uh, which, you know, are, are, are seem to be doing quite well by their students uh, with a highly centralized uh, national approach uh, to schooling. Um, and for many, I think, who approach education, this has led to the notion that, aha, <laughs> we need to make the U.S. more like these guys. Um, and what worries me is in this kind of best practice groupthink is the notion that there is one way <laughs> to solve problems in this world. And I think that's rarely the case. I, I think great problem solving uh, in a classroom, uh, in a work environment, in a nation, is all about figuring out what somebody does well, what an organization does well, what a nation does well, and then how do you apply those strengths to problem solve. And I think the notion of the U.S. Uh, uh, imposing uh, a, a Singaporean or a Finnish kind of solution uh, it, it is unlikely to work the way it's intended. Uh, our, our constitutional structure doesn't work that way. Uh, we're an enormously heterogeneous nation. Uh, our strength has never been uh, our, our groupthink uh, cooperation, but instead the entrepreneurial dynamism uh, that has, you know, that, that, that has characterized America since its founding. And it strikes me that what, what I would love to see us do is talk about what does it look like to embrace those principles of heterogeneity and diversity and entrepreneurial energy when it comes to school improvement. Because I think this is where America is positioned to do its work well. Um, when I look at the most promising charter school endeavors, the Achievement First and the High Tech Highs and the Green Dots and uh, the KIPPs, um, that, this, that this is what I see. When I look at citizen schools or New Teacher Project or Teach for America. Uh, these are opportunities uh, that I think are enormously, enormously exciting and enormously powerful. Um, now the problem is we've got a system 
which makes it enormously difficult to take these kinds of solutions to scale. Uh, Debbie Meyer, I talk about uh, Central Park East in the book. We've had these kinds of one-off boutiques forever, um, and they tend not to serve very many kids or go very far. In fact, the folks who figure these things out and serve millions of kids uh, tend to be entities like SchoolNet or Wireless Generation, uh, which aren't trying to solve every problem for everybody, but which are trying to help educators um, do one thing or a few things much better for, for, for a particular group or of students. And so, you know, really, what, what, what I, one of the things I'm, I'm pushing us to think about is rather than engage in these casual um, nods towards, gosh, what would it take to be more like some of these other, you know, tiny, single state-sized international competitors, um, how do we start thinking about how do you build systems of funding and accountability uh, and opportunity uh, that are going to really leverage America's strengths to serve our students? Again, I know we're not going to get to it all, but we'll go to Q&A in uh, just a couple of minutes. But before we do so, uh, would you talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by unbundling the schoolhouse? Sure. Um, well, you know, the way I talk about it in the book is I suggest that we talk, that we've historically talked about what I call whole school solutions. Um, is that if you figure out how to do eighth grade algebra well, we say that's swell. Um, we have two, we have two remedies, <laughs> two ways for you to contribute. Either you can go do flyby professional development to school districts and help try to teach their eighth grade teachers how to use your model. And this is unsurprisingly given us decades of research showing that programs that are done well in one place hardly ever scale. And I find that unsurprising because we know that things that are done well aren't, aren't or rarely just about the idea. It's about the people are committed to it, they're deeply trained in it, they're expert in it, they own it. And that's hardly ever the way that schools and school districts um, go about trying to emulate best practices. Uh, and the, but the whole school presumption is that the school is going to remain intact, and we're going to try to bring in people to help them do something better, and it rarely sticks. The other version of the whole school solution is in the charter school space, is if you figure out how to do eighth grade algebra, we say terrific. Go start a charter school to do it. Go spend the next two years of your life writing a charter application, getting a facility, recruiting a faculty, doing everything that we have no reason to believe you're any good at, uh, so that you can then do as part of that middle school the one thing where you actually know how to do well. Um, to my mind, this is a lot like every time um, a medical device uh, innovator created a better stent valve. Uh, that we told them, hey, go start a hospital and use it. A more sensible solution, in my mind, is to embrace the notion that people usually don't do everything better. Uh, when people are lucky, when people are focused, they usually figure out how to do one thing better. They figure out how to solve one problem. So one way to think about unbundling is we're getting away from saying, all right, in order to make progress, we've got to figure out how to do better schools, which becomes an enormous, hugely <laughs> problematic challenge, and instead say, how do we let people solve 1% of this? How do we let somebody deliver 
online tutoring in chemistry much more effectively? How do we figure out how to get uh, non-English language speaking parents engaged much more effectively? And are there ways to create particular roles at a school that are going to have a massively impactful role, uh, have a massive impact? And can we have a special organization that is going to hire and train teachers for that particular niche? How do we think about what it takes to actually get uh, students who are lagging dramatically in literacy in grades? three and four, and can we, can we figure out, can somebody come up with a model which is going to serve those kids, and can we figure out how to let them do that model for those student populations instead of just doing some fly-by professional development of the grade three and four teachers. So unbundling is really just about shifting our perspective from thinking always in terms of how do we make the school writ large better, and how do we start thinking about all the different elements that go into schooling and instruction and support and figuring out how to let people do one piece of that much better, and then how do we weave that back in? Okay, so I want to move us to Q&A. Uh, I have a couple of questions prepared uh, in the absence of any. If I've missed the question that you've put in the chat, please put it in again. There's been so much chat that I'm quite certain I have missed the question. Your other alternative is to use the icon at the bottom of the participant window to hand with the green up arrow where you can ask your you can ask a question using the microphone. And while we're waiting for some questions to come through, Rick, there were four topics that didn't appear in the book so far as I could tell, and I was curious about them. Homeschooling, uh, the the role of parents, student driven educations and homework. Did I miss them or were they intentionally not there or were, are they just not a part of your sort of narrative around schooling? Um, <laughs> this is, that's a fantastic question. Um, and and it's, there's in one sense, um, you know, it's really a book about how we think about schooling. So there's a lot of stuff that didn't get nearly as much attention. Uh, as some readers, you know, would have liked uh, special education. Um, some readers would have liked to see me deal with much more extensively than I did. Um, I, 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 but but I, no, no, I think you've flagged these pretty much properly. Uh, I think what's distinctive about them is that I'm trying to offer a narrative about how do we think about the institution of schooling and what that institution can accomplish. Um, and when I think about that, uh, the question of homeschooling is obviously, I think, part of the tapestry. I'm talking about us being less wedded to the box that we call school and much more in tuned to the function of schooling uh, and how do we enable and support that uh, wherever it happens. So that obviously overlaps with homeschoolers, but uh, I'm interested in, in, the, in the schooling project itself. Uh, when it comes to parents, uh, I think I touch at a couple of places about how thinking differently about school design can make it easier or harder to engage, uh, to engage parental support. But again, you're exactly right. This is really about what goes on uh, in the business of that school and how do schools come to look like they do. Same is true of homework. Homework is, again, deeply linked to what happens with schooling, but again, it is something that really happens outside of the conventional school day and I'm trying to help readers think differently about why the school day looks like it does, why the boundaries are where they are. Um, and student-driven instruction, talk about, I think, a little bit more in the sense that uh, I spend some time talking about 
different school models uh, about how do we think about the trade-offs of, say, a constructivist student-centered approach, um, about how do we think about some of the new technologies and the opportunities for independent learning. Um, but you know, but but I mean, I think your I think your question's a good one, and ultimately, I'm less interested in trying to weigh in on the virtues of any particular pedagogical or or, or curricular or instructional philosophy uh, than I am on trying to think about how do we create a space where people can build educational opportunities uh, that do the that, that do and that. It, so long as they adopt any particular approach in a way that serves the students uh, they're working with. Thanks for that answer. There's a discussion going on in the chat about you know, why we would only get 50 participants for this kind of a webinar and not uh, the 200 to 250 you'd see at a typical sort of online business webinar. And, and I'm going to weigh in here just briefly. I have found that uh, the more we talk about specific tools, in the different webinars we do, the higher the attendance, the more we kind of dive into these deeper questions uh, about education reform, it, we see a, a diminished audience. I'm not sure that that says anything other than that these are hard topics and it may just be that it's hard to take time in the middle of the day for a deep topic. Um, I think it's possible that um, because they're deep topics that um, they're maybe not as compelling for, for the things that need to get done in the moment. Uh, Rick, uh, T. Musseline asks, what are your thoughts on Race to Nowhere and Waiting for Superman? Uh, sure. Um, I've been uh, publicly, uh, I've said some uh, pretty tough things about Waiting for Superman. Uh, Race to Nowhere I haven't much addressed. Um, Waiting for Superman, um, like the other movies of its ilk, uh, The Cartel, uh, oh, golly, <laughs> it's been so long now, um, The Lottery, and I can't even, The Lottery, The Cartel, what have you, um, are, you know, I think they, they, they play a useful function. Um, they, uh, you know, are three hanky picks on behalf of a certain agenda, uh, on behalf of school choice, on behalf of, uh, teacher evaluation as championed by you know by, by my friend Michelle Ree, um, and this is fine. This is good. This is you know th th these things are all normal and healthy. Um, I was pretty tough on the movie because a I, I worry that these that, that this kind of what I call agitprop uh, can lead to oversimplification, uh, and it's too easy for and, and that it's often too easy. Uh, for this kind of sloganeering uh, and uh, you know emo emotion-driven argument uh, to turn sensible conversations into us versus them uh, name-calling, um, which is I think a problem, in, in, in less a problem for the movie, and often more a problem for the way that the movie is used and talked about um, by its supporters. Uh, and then the second thing is. I think the uh, the publicity, the dissemination built out around Race to the Top, uh, excuse me, around uh, Waiting for Superman um, was pretty mindless. Uh, go to a school board meeting, tutor a kid. Uh, I felt Davis Guggenheim was remarkably uh, disingenuous in talking about his movie, where he seemed after writing, a, after making a movie that was 
profoundly critical of teacher unions, uh, that he seemed to be uh, reluctant to follow through on that in the public square, and he kept going out of his way to talk about how he's a union guy and he likes unions. Um, and I'm just, you know, and I, I get frustrated when people want to throw a bomb and then run away from the scene. Um, with uh, as, as far as a race to nowhere, uh, it just, you know, I mean, again, like when we're Superman, I think it makes uh, some valid points. Uh, I think it's agitprop. Uh, I do worry that because it doesn't even fit into much of a reform uh, milieu, that instead it simply becomes a talking point on its own uh, and, and gets wielded by, and, and simply gets wielded not on behalf of any particular notion of how do we do a better job of addressing these things, what would it look like to do to, to address these issues well, uh, but simply a kind of nothing, uh, generally just a, uh, a whiny <laughs> kind of go-nowhere response uh, to some of the demands, uh, the, the, you know, some of the demands and probably some of the occasionally unduly onerous demands uh, put upon suburban kids, but I, I don't see much uh, that any of uh, Race Nowhere's fans have put forward uh, that seems either particularly constructive uh, or geared to foster a, a healthy conversation. So I've only seen Race to Knower and Waiting for Superman, and felt Waiting for Superman for me personally was a, was more flawed than Race to Nowhere, but appreciated that both movies generated local conversations around education. Um, Race to Nowhere uh, gave me the impression that hard work was too much for kids, whereas I feel like if they could have shown kids who were really engaged, that you could have you could actually have the opposite message, which is when there's true engagement, they really want to work hard. But if both of those movies did a good job of creating spaces for local conversation, have you seen ways in which communities have really done a good job of, of working to build their own educational culture? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part of the trick here is that it's something of a collective action problem. Um, Parents, uh, you know, parents who are deeply concerned about their kids' education, uh, the most straightforward, uh, most manageable response is to move somewhere where the school's good and then plug into a pre-existing uh, parent organization. Uh, when we're talking about really building social capital, building networks um, to drive school improvement, um, well, you know, we're generally talking about asking people to do stuff that's only going to have, <laughs> at best, very indirect, very long-term benefit for their own child. Um, we're asking them to do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, and the reality is that that's just, you know, I'm enough of a cynic, I guess, that I don't think that's a, a, a very viable strategy for getting mass engagement uh, over a long haul in almost any area. So I think the places that we've seen that's done best in education are places where it's not spontaneously getting a lot of folks together, trying to keep them engaged year in, year out, um, but where there are some organizers, where there's some entities, where there's some folks who drive this conversation. I think even uh, Eva Moskowitz's uh, Harlem Success Academy in New York City uh, ha have done a marvelous job of showing how do you mobilize 
parents to demand more of these of these schools. It helps, of course, in Eva's case, these are charter schools with remarkable performance because she then has loads of parents in Harlem who are on wait lists. And these parents, they have something very concrete and personal to ask for, which is they want more of these schools so that they can get their kids into them. Uh, that creates something of a potent force. We've seen that with Ben Austin's parent revolution out in California, uh, particularly in L.A., where by organizing parents around a particular agenda, um, say using the parental trigger uh, to overhaul a school, that they have managed to make the otherwise amorphous issue of school reform much more concrete and immediate. Um, another way to think about this is that there are certain places, you know, there's institutional players in a community, um, particularly uh, local businesses that have an obvious and sustained interest in education. And when they come to the table, like we talked about before, with a serious grasp of the issues, uh, and an interest in really talking to and working with the educators, and then standing up for their own interests, obviously, um, that this tends to, to, tends to foster a productive dynamic. We've seen this in Austin. The Austin Chamber of Commerce uh, has done terrific work with the 15 Austin area districts over the past six, seven years. We've seen this in Nashville, uh, where the uh, wall-to-wall academies model um, from Metropolitan Nashville uh, has proceeded in intense cooperation uh, with the business community. And we've seen this in Massachusetts, where the Massachusetts uh, Business and Education Alliance, uh, you know, has been part and parcel of Massachusetts' terrific track record educationally, uh, going back to the 93 uh, Education Reform Act, the School Reform Act. So we've just got a few minutes left. If you have a question for Rick, and I've missed it in the chat, please uh, flag it. There's a, there are long conversations going on in here, and it's hard for me to follow. Um, you can also raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow to ask a question. So I, I, because I run the interview series, I get to ask some of the same questions over and over again. And one of the thoughts that's been occurring to me lately is <laughs> the degree to which we see democracy as a process and where we live with imperfect outcomes because we believe there's value in the process. Um, is that an appropriate kind of imagery or metaphor for education, would that be a better way of thinking about how uh, we look at um, imperfections in the system? And to what degree are we bound by this idea of equity? Sure. Uh, no, this is terrific. So I think well, sometimes we conflate two things. Um, if we think about the founders, um, they're, 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 there's two strands of democratic engagement that run through the American founding. One is the notion that we have to come together as a people to make certain decisions. Uh, and that's absolutely true. We've got to decide as a people how much we're going to spend per pupil on education. Um, on the other hand, it, it, you know, it, it was the case that you know, when Horace Mann was leading the common school movement in Massachusetts, a century and a half ago, that in a town you were going to have a school and it was going to teach what it was going to teach and you had to have a teacher and these things, you had to make these decisions um, that were going to apply to everybody because the technology of the era was, was limiting. Today, some of the things that we once had to all decide we're all going to get vanilla or we're all going to get chocolate Today, we're no longer forced in that dilemma. 
we can actually allow some people to get vanilla and some people to get chocolate. Um, and, and so I think part of the way that we think about what, 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 what does democratic education require is if we think that there is a clear and obvious value uh, to requiring that all children studying uh, seventh grade mathematics uh, start on day one on uh, this, uh, this item in terms of scope and sequence and pacing, and they all proceed at more or less the same rate through day 180, uh, with only a teacher struggling with differentiated instruction to try to address the various needs, if we think that democratic education requires that, then that, that's, you know, then so be it. It strikes me that that's not plausible. <laughs> It strikes me that if we have the technology and the capability today, as with New York City's School of One, um, to use algorithms and new modalities of instruction and online tutoring and computer-assisted instruction, uh, to allow those teachers in that school to vary instruction so that children don't have to sit and be bored when they've already mastered a lesson, so that kids get additional time if they need to, so that we're actually starting to reconfigure the very stuff of schooling around what's going to work for various children, it's hard for me to imagine how the, 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 the responsibilities of democratic education make this inappropriate. It strikes me that the, the, the obligations of public education, of democratic education, are that we provide resources to educate every child, um, that we as a people determine what constitutes uh, appropriate provision, and that we have, uh, create uh, agreed-upon metrics to ensure that all children are being adequately served. Beyond that, I worry sometimes that we imagine that if schooling is not provided by people who work for the state government, or if schooling isn't to proceed in classrooms that we recognize, or if schooling isn't in the old schools with the same old football teams, that somehow this is a violation of democratic education. Uh, and, and that's the point at which, uh, at which folks lose me. So I really appreciate that distinction between sort of the different ways that we use that phrase democracy in and of itself. Um, again, we're getting a lot of chat here. Uh, I'm not seeing a specific question on it. I'm seeing a lot of uh, back and forth. Maybe nobody's brave enough to revisit the teacher bashing piece, but I think we have time for one more question. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to read you a phrase. Uh, from the book, Rick, that I thought was, was fascinating to me. Uh, the irony of our current debates is that those who ardently champion the state's retention of a tight grip on school operations are also typically among the most hostile to the Rousseauian claim that schools ought to be training Benjamin Rush's Republican machines. Rather, today's proponents of muscular state-operated schools assert the need for schooling that prepares students to be free-thinking, informed, and equipped for life after high school. This is a bit of fancy footwork. Shall we use that as our final statement? Do you want to comment on that? Sure. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things I argue in the book is that, you know, the founders, the folks at the American founding who worried most about education, uh, especially Benjamin Rush and Thomas Jefferson, uh, were very clear and very unapologetic that they wanted to build out schools uh, to separate, uh, you know, the, the, the precious jewels from the rubble, uh, and that a huge central, uh, a, a key part of the mission of schooling was, in Russia's phrase, uh, to teach children to be Republican machines. Horace Mann, of course, uh, 60 years later, 
had exactly the same mindset that the major purpose of common schooling, as Mann saw it, was to take particularly these Irish Catholic heathen uh, and teach them to be more like good American, uh, more like good Protestant Americans and less like, less like their misguided parents. So the machinery of schooling is run by the state was historically intended to very consciously shape students in a way that was thought to make them good Americans. Um, it makes a certain sense that the state has to run those schools, has to be very prescriptive about which Bible will be read, about what's going to be learned, if that's your objective. What's fascinating to me today is that the people, like my good friend Diane Ravitch, who are most eager to defend the primacy of these familiar institutions, these schools with a particular curriculum and particular priorities, those folks at ed schools who are deeply entrenched in this also are the first to say, my God, of course we don't want to teach children to be, um, to be xenophobic. <laughs> of course we don't want them to be simple-minded patriots. Of course we don't want to teach them um, you know, one way of thinking. Our agenda is to teach them to be uh, accepting of diversity, to celebrate it. Well, I've got to tell you, if you're comfortable with diversity, if you want to celebrate diversity, then it's not clear to me that you need one system <laughs> of state-run schooling that's championing one agreed-upon curricula and marching kids through it in one particular way. An easy way to promote diversity is to celebrate and accept diversity and how we go about providing and organizing and delivering instruction and schooling. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and so for me, if we're comfortable with that, it opens huge opportunities for educators and folks in the education space to think creatively and differently about how we tackle our challenges. So that did end up being a great way to finish the interview. Rick, thanks so much. I know that an hour doesn't do justice to, to a book with uh, such nuance and thoughtfulness in it, but I heard in almost every answer of yours the willingness to sort of look at both sides uh, thoughtfully. Uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, we skipped large portions of it, but thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, Rick Hess, the same thing over and over, how school reformers get stuck in yesterday's ideas. I'm clapping for you. You can't see that uh, since you're on the telephone, but really appreciate you coming on the show and participating. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, thanks, Rick. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Rick, uh, it's the middle of the business day, so please uh, just feel free to hang up. We've, we've expressed our appreciation. There was clapping, and um, we know you've got other things to do. So thanks so much. Coming up uh, in April on the 7th, Bernard Jean Porter on local ed engagement. Carl speak on Be Your Own Brand, Dream Mints on Education Revolution. Lots of fun coming up. Very diverse, well, let's use Rick's phrase. It's a very diverse set of sessions coming up. So hopefully there's something there that's of interest to you. And again, all the recordings are posted up on futureofeducation.com. And uh, the interview from today will be up later today. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.